Welcome to Optimist in Progress uh, with me, Tom Johnson, and my co-host, Dr. Drea Lettermendi. Hi, Drea. Hi, Tom. Today we are talking to Josh Harris. He is a hospitality figure here in California and way beyond. He's the owner of two bars in San Francisco, Trick Dog and Bon Voyage, and he's the co-founder of The Bon Vivants, um, a marketing and trade advocacy agency specializing in the hospitality industry. Josh is highly influential in the San Francisco cocktail scene, and he's recognized for his detailed ink work, his significant beard, uh, and his own personal style. His influence extends far beyond the city, though. Trick Dog is recognized as one of the world's 50 best bars. It's been on that list for many, many years. Um, and he's been a finalist for three James Beard Awards for Outstanding Bar Program, which is amazing. The Bon Vivant Hospitality crew are also recognized for their incredible staff. They have a strong focus on training and advocacy and creating growth environments. And beyond that, Josh and the Bon Vivants have significant philanthropic bent. They're creating events which have raised over $750,000 to date for social causes, which is incredible. Another interesting thing about Josh, and perhaps something that is surprising, is that he stopped drinking and any kind of drug use in his early 20s. And he was an early adopter of the new generation of non-alcoholic drinks. Looking forward to getting his perspective on them and the growing sober curious moment in the flurry of articles and research which is circulating around America's drinking culture and the impact of the pandemic on all of our drinking behaviours. So it should be a really interesting conversation today. Really fascinating. I'm curious to hear from him how he navigates the hospitality field and and that landscape and also manage his own personal views and behaviors, um, which I I imagine is something he's been working on. And I'm so excited to talk to him and hear about how how he does that and and perhaps he can share some wisdom. Hello, Josh Harris. What's up? How are you? Hello, I'm doing all right. How about you? Very well, thanks. Good. Nice to see you again and uh, happy to introduce you to Drea. Hi, Josh. Nice to meet you. So nice to meet you as well. I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks for the introduction. It's great to be on with both of you as well. We like to ground the conversation uh, early on and ask about optimism and your take on it. Um, What do you think of the word and do you define yourself as an optimist? Mm. Uh, I'll start with the easy part first. I do define myself as an optimist and I do think of that distinction as being pretty black or white. And I guess it's been easy for me to see myself as a positive person, uh, as an optimist, as one who, uh, let's say, generally sees things as glass half full versus glass half empty, that uh, generally thinks that things are gonna be all right, uh, as opposed to that they're not gonna be okay and tries to will those positive outcomes through positive thought and energy and believes that the opposite of those positive outcomes can be like subliminally like manifested by the reverse of a positive outlook. And so in some ways, like I, I scare myself into positive thinking because I want what I believe is the result from that as opposed to the opposite. So I do generally think of myself that way. Um, although as I'm sure that 
gets attached to this way of thinking. Like, it doesn't mean that I think that things are great all the time, uh, you know, and with connection to some of my story, uh, certainly we go on our, our rides that are ups and downs. And I think that being able to understand being in the downs as much as the ups doesn't change like an optimistic way of living your life, but, um, you know, just sort of means that you need to encounter life and, and, you know, work your way through it, I guess. It's interesting. It's so interesting to hear people's own personal perspective on that and, and sound to like a kind of conscious decision to work towards how you want it to be rather than focus on, you know, how it could be. It just seems like a, a important use of energy. You know, I think that, that so much of it is is thought, but it's also kind of directed thought. And you talking about putting energy towards things and, and doing um, rather than just having a perspective on it, I think is really interesting. I don't, I don't believe that things just happen to us. And so, you know, not to jump too far ahead, because this is an important part of my story, but, you know, with respect to my sobriety, a lot of my thoughts on how I engage with the world are rooted in uh, tools that I learned or perspectives that I cultivated at the time when I was, uh, you know, becoming sober learning how to be sober, going through the process of, of becoming sober and so on. And so I don't believe that things just happen to us. I believe that we have to, you know, we have to take our steps forward. And so uh, we can do that with positivity or negativity as humans. In my mind, that's like, it's, it's, it's that linear. So, you know, part of how I came out of that was to try and go through the world positively and try and meet things with, with an optimism, right? Like you, you have to make that so for yourself. In my opinion. Based on what I know of your work, you've tried many things and you've also carved your own individual path. I'd like to ask you about your upbringing and how you were raised and whether you think that family environment or that social environment impacted you and especially as it relates to your outlook, the outlook that you just described. Mm. Only child, parents, uh, separated when I was very young, both still in my life and wonderful relationships and role models for me, both remarried when I was very young, both with wonderful new partners that they've been with since that time who have also become like great role models and, uh, you know, and parents to me. I was raised with a general philosophy of a you can do or be whatever you want or set your mind to. And uh, without thinking about it that directly, you know, only in hindsight, I've, I've thought a lot about that and how that's informed, you know, decisions that I've made about my career, risks that I've taken, things like that. Um, when you get older and you actually have to make decisions that have consequences about things, then you start to doubt whether you could actually do anything that you set your mind to. Um, but, you know, generally sort of came at it with that perspective. When I was uh, younger, uh, I competed in athletics up until a, you know, a, a point in my young adult life where I got hurt. And so I also bring um, you know, the way that I engaged in that part of my life, you know, sort of being driven by my parents and the support that they gave me. And then also the things that uh, I sort of learned or that were, um, you know, that stuck with me about being a competitive athlete that uh, I think are really important in terms of the way that I look at the world now and the way that I feel that I, you know, go through my, my days or, or tackle things. 
I think that I'm very connected with my childhood and I'm very connected with my parents. And there's a lot of things in, in my heart and in my head that relate to why I am who I am. When you talk about competitive sports, I, I noticed this pause, almost a reflection on what tools you garnered from, from that time of your life. I'm not sure that you play sports now, but I'm wondering what were those gems? Was it something about your self-value? Was it something about the resiliency that you talk about? Are you able to pinpoint that? Yeah. So this is like a collision of a lot of parts of the story. So I got into university to play a sport. I ran track. I did other sports when I was younger. And uh, I hurt myself uh, at the beginning of university. I had hurt myself a few times and had some surgeries when I was younger. And I basically used the injury that I had gotten when I got to college as a way to stop competing in athletics. It was also the time that coincided with me uh, starting to engage in like heavy drug and alcohol use and sort of like, you know, as, as one thing, you know, went down, the other thing went up and, and that was where that happened. So there's a lot of really significant um, psychological components that relate to that. A lot of self-doubt, a lot of like, you know, things that I've reflected on where, uh, you know, like everybody that plays a sport, you know, who was like, kind of like, you know, maybe like one of the best at their high school, then it's like, when you get to college, it's like, well, everybody was like the best at their high school people that go to pros. It's like, you know, you were the best at your college. It's like in the pros, it's like, well, everybody was the best at their college. So there was something that I was dealing with at that time where I was also sort of, uh, afraid to like step into that larger pond. And I had some, some doubt around that. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, any of the other confusion that, you know, swirls around in us as we navigate our steps into like young adulthood and moving away from home and any of the other things that, you know, were going on in my life. But basically I was coming out of a place where I would step out there and, you know, have the confidence that I was going to win. And that was something that really drove my, my way of thinking and an attitude of like manifestation at that time. And in track, you know, there's something about, um, you know, I, I, I sort of associate with sports where people compete individually, even though there's a team component, things that are sort of like started or stopped with a gun. So like swimmers, I'm sure have a, a similar experience, but it's like you get out there and everybody lines up and it's really this like test of, you know, here, here are this group of people that are all lined up next to one another and, you know, and everybody's going at it being like, I'm going to win, but then somebody's going to win. And I think that that was a really important attitude in terms of like manifesting that success that I had at a younger age. And also like this double-edged sword of, of pressures that, you know, I'm sure it's not unique to me that I felt that I just sort of, you know, I caved to my circumstances and I, you know, I have challenging feelings about that, that I look back on, you know, that I always look back to that point in my life. I think it's a very uh, challenging moment for a lot of athletes when you've put so much into competition and you transition away and you've had such a direct focus on your energy in, in one very specific area of life and it's probably been the thing that you think about, about when you wake up in the morning first thing. It's probably the thing that you're making adjustments in your daily routine every day to kind of 
fit it's definitely what kind of you know what's driving a lot of behaviors everywhere from what you're eating to what how you're resting to you know, the clothes you're wearing to everything and to have that removed is a vulnerable moment I think for a lot of people and I know that a lot of athletes kind of transitioning out of highly competitive areas whether they've gone to college or they've gone to the Olympics or they've being a, a professional um, athlete is that that is a, a, a difficult transition for a lot of people. Uh, I, I think so. And that in my case and timing was also then combined with being away from home for the first time and, you know, also trying to find the ways that we communicate who we are to the world. Like what are the, what are the things that make up my identity, you know, prior to that point in my life, you know, as a, in a late teenager, I was Josh, the athlete, Josh, the athlete that like won, which was an important part of it. And then, and also like, and at home and with your friends and your people, you know, the, the people that you've sort of been around, you know, your whole life at that point to now being in a new place and lacking that identity marker. And it became clear to me through my work on myself that my new identity marker was going to be using drugs and alcohol with the same winning spirit. <laughs> the same competitive commitment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how did you make that transition then from, you know, kind of college athlete to... Um, it, you know, it sounds like you then got uh, quite involved in putting your energies in different uh, spaces. How did you find yourself in the hospitality industry? When I was 21 years old, well, prior to being 21 years old, I lied my way into a bar backing job at a bar. It was really fun. I got, I ended up getting fired for not being 21 because I, <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't keep it up for so long, but I sort of looked back at that time where I was like, oh man, like that was like the best month of my life when I was working at this bar. And of course, at that time I was, I was still, I was still drinking and like having, you know, just like I wanted to be in the party. So it was really fun for me to be there. But also like when you strip all that stuff away, there were things about it that I loved, which of course I wasn't talking about at that time, the way that I'm able to talk about it now, like as a hospitality professional that can sort of pinpoint things out but that led to and this was like kind of summer job sort of stuff mm -hmm. so the the next summer uh i got a job in a restaurant working uh front of house not behind the bar but i was really being drawn to like want to be in the bar and then the next summer came i had turned 21 and the manager from that restaurant had become the manager at another restaurant here in san francisco that's no longer around uh it's called post trio uh, in Los Angeles, there's a restaurant called Spago. It was in the same family by Wolfgang Puck. So it like, had this great reputation. It was like super impactful on the San Francisco dining scene and like had this super lively bar. And I came in and I, I said, you know, I will do anything here. Like, I'll, you know, I'll run food, I'll wash dishes. I need to get a job. He was like, are you 21 yet? Uh, do you still want to work behind the bar? My day bartender left yesterday. Literally, you're it. Show up tomorrow. <laughs> it's like, so... Yeah, 21, 21 years old and was like completely thrown to the walls. So I loved it. Like I loved everything about it. And, you know, keep on fast forwarding. Uh, not too long after that, I left university, uh, 
went to an inpatient treatment program, uh, got sober, never went back, you know, have been sober since the, you know, 72 hours before I walked into that place and I've been sober ever since. And I went back to school at a different university and completed my time there. I got my degree at that university. And while I was at that school, I like in, in, in efforts to be like really like filling up my time, stay busy. You know, one of the things I was like, you know, I went into this like overachiever state that kind of some people do when they start to get sober and they're like, I can do everything and I, I need to do it all so that it can help me, you know, fill my time and everything. So I, uh, <laughs> I went back to bartending much to the, um, <laughs> much to the chagrin of like so many people in my life. Uh, and, you know, kind of for obvious reasons, but what I felt like, and this was like a really important part to me now, looking back on it all, when at 22 years old, I felt the desire to be social and to be like interacting with my friends, other people that were my age, like, you know, trying to meet girls and go out on dates and, you know, hang out with my buddies. And when you're 22, or at least when I was 22, you know, like a lot of that happens at bars. And when I was going out and hanging out in those situations, like, you know, I, I felt comfortable from the point of view, like I didn't feel like I was going to have a drink. That wasn't, you know, that it wasn't like that for me, but I dealt with a lot of the social anxieties that I feel like we all have, regardless of whether we drink or don't, but then just became really apparent. So, you know, things about like, you know, do I buy a drink for everybody else or does anybody care if I'm not drinking or how should I stand or I'll just like go out and smoke again or whatever. And it felt just like really awkward. And it was like this constant sort of battle. And what I found was that when I went back to being on the other side of the bar, that it was like so calming and I didn't have to deal with any of those social anxieties that I felt on the customer side of the bar and that it allowed me to just be there and be in the environment, but not have to deal with the challenges about like whether I was drinking or not and having to like answer to somebody else around it. The human connection that goes with being in a in a bar or in a restaurant is amazing i think as an adult that's kind of where so much of you know the fun stuff about being an adult happens you know it plays out it's where friendships play out it's where you go to meet you know meet up with someone that you haven't seen for a long time it's where uh romantic relationships start or or blossom or or um or are celebrated and um there is an awkwardness in there sometimes if you're not um, drinking alcohol. And it's really interesting to me, I didn't realize that you, before you started work um, behind the bar, you actually were not drinking. So you, you, your entire career has, has been. No, I got, I got a couple years in while I was still drinking. Oh, okay. Right. But they're at the point when the, the decisions around this being my career were being formed. Right. Like I was solidly a non-drinker. And at the points in time when that transitioned from just working in a bar to like the occurrence of the cocktail renaissance, mm -hmm. which was really sort of the thing where people in my position were starting to look at what was happening, that movement and see something bigger that they wanted to be a part of. At that point in time, I was solidly a non-drinker. 
Right. Looking at cocktails and those combinations was really about flavor. You know, the only way that I was able to connect with it was thinking about it as food, because the part of it that led to intoxication was something that, you know, I had very firm stances about, but the parts of it that related to flavor and those combinations of flavor as this like mechanism over, you know, which people could interact and be social was like really exciting to me in terms of what was going on. That's super interesting. I was talking to a chef the other day and, and he was surprised at the, the, the drinks industry in, in restaurants. He said like, you know, often people aren't asking for the nutritional facts of what I'm making. They want the flavor, right? They want to, they want it to be beautiful. And he, he was making the observation that in, um, in beverage, it's strange that there's a fixation on alcohol. And rather than looking at incredible flavors for people and and being able to kind of have a have something that you want to taste, there's so much focus on the the booze that's in in your glass. And he thought that was restricted. He thought that that was something that uh, needed to change. And it sounds like that was kind of part of the inspiration for you in drinks creation because it's led to some very successful drinks creations in in your in the bricks and mortar bars that you've created. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that I I didn't have that perspective on it articulated that way at the time, but it all, you know, we sort of understand these things more in hindsight as as we take a look at, you know, the decisions we've made. And And I would agree with your friend who's a chef. I also think that, you know, the global view of alcohol challenges the world's perception of alcohol, right? And it's it's different in different countries in different parts of the world, but, you know, like we can look at television as an example. And why is it that culinary shows have achieved like tremendous acclaim and shows about cocktails or cocktail related things have struggled to go into what is essentially like a formula that could be plug and play and put into the same model. Why has that struggled? And there's a few different reasons, but without a doubt, one of them is sort of like the puritanical roots that exist around alcohol. And despite being in 2021, that's like, you know, a a thing that has a stigma that's even a stigma to call it a stigma to talk about with alcohol. Uh, So it's challenging. It's, it's, it's a relationship that is different for everyone. And it's very different than food. Although I do disagree with your friend to one point, I do think that people across all things that they're putting in their body in certain places are starting to look at what's going into them in different ways, you know, with a more, um, you know. Yeah, heightened awareness of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the relationship aspect that you're noting, the awareness and the knowledge and and sort of the, the growing, I would say, the literacy around alcohol use is interesting. There's, in my field, a lot of research around alcohol use. Um, You've shared with us your personal journey with addiction and sober living. My question is about how these behaviors have sort of emerged even before the pandemic, but perhaps even uh, through the pandemic. Maybe they've worsened or or they've they've been uh, exacerbated in some way, Uh, specifically as we've been talking about, alcohol can have a positive social effect. In fact, there's a book called Drunk uh, by Edward Slingerland that 
makes these historical points and, and also addresses how the elements of drinking alcohol can be good for us in the sense that we're holding space together. We have um, the comforts of one another. We're bonding and connecting and and those happen in spaces that you work. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other side of it that has also been researched, the increasing amounts of, uh, of drinking, especially hard liquor and the drinking habits that happen in isolation. So not in social situations, not as an added element of uh, gatherings and groupings, but rather what could potentially be a habit that deepens depression or is masking stress and anxiety. And I see a lot of that. So I'm just curious to hear from you, like, do you see this? What are your perspectives around these different behavioral patterns? Well, I guess I'll uh, even though you've set me up without having to be on the hook for this, I, you know, when I get into this sort of territory, I want to reiterate that, like, I'm not a professional in this territory. I only have my own experience. And so I can see as a sober person and particularly one that's in the, you know, the drinks business, the hospitality business, I can see the social benefits of alcohol and I can see the opposite of that in my own life. I've always thought that I will be on the outside of certain things because I don't drink. And that that's an insecurity that I have that, uh, you know, I'm confident in that insecurity and confident with my life choices, but that like, I recognize that there is certain social camaraderie that either I will not achieve or will, that I will never even know, or will have had the opportunity to cultivate with certain people that I know now, or will, you know, will never meet in the future because I don't drink. And that's something that I came to terms with a long time ago. It's something that I understood like, you know, many, many years ago that that was a decision that I was making. And so by understanding that, I then agree with you that I, I think that there are a lot of benefits socially. I also don't think on its face that people that drink alcohol outside of those settings have a problem or that it's bad. I don't think that like, if you drink alcohol when you're sad, that that like means something that you have a problem. You know, I think like, I'm not a a big AA preacher, but like one of them is, is pretty obvious where it's like, you know, your life has become unmanageable, right? So you know that. And just because you drink when you're sad doesn't mean your life is unmanageable or, you know, so on. So, uh, it's really like, it's personal for lots of people clearly looking at the pandemic, like, it's obvious that a lot of people were drinking at home. It's obvious that things were really messed up for a lot of people. And I think that it's also like, it's challenging to put people's home consumption of alcohol into one or the other of those buckets, right? Are you drinking because you're sad and you're depressed and you want to get away? Are you drinking at home because you're just at home all the time, right? Drinking at home isn't bad. So it's, it's really like, I know that we want to sort of like, we have the desire to talk about like the, 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 the global trends of certain things, but I've really felt like people's relationships with drug and alcohol are like really personal, not like personal, like you don't talk about them, but it's sort of like it, it, the nuances of it are what make it unique. Clearly, statistically, there are tons and tons of people that were drinking at home over the last year. And I've read, you know, some of the, the same things that maybe you guys have read as well. And it, it's concerning when you look at it statistically, 
but also I think that there's so many other things that, that like combine into that, um, you know, other topics of mental health, other topics of balance, other topics of like professional uh, insecurity and all of that. And, and I don't think that it, we can look at any of those things, at least with my relationship with alcohol and drugs. It's like, I don't think we can look at any of them just like on their own. They're, they're this sort of like tsunami of things that, you know, become maybe bigger than that for certain people. So. That's such a key point to, to underline there is the context of alcohol use. And I appreciated how you described that. I was just thinking about a headline I saw like two days ago here in Los Angeles that said, good news, um, you can still get your alcohol to go uh, when you order food. And I, it was couched in such positivity, like this is a win for us. And I, and I for a moment, thought, is oh, a this win. is good. <laughs> I thought this is great. And then I realized that was more restricted before the pandemic. Um, yep. And and now it's celebrated. So it's it's really fascinating, isn't it? It is. I mean, and to my puritanical reference that I made earlier, you know, the alcoholic drinks business is like so highly regulated and the regulations around it are the regulations that were created in the 30s when like our country decided that all of a sudden, you know, we were going to allow people to drink alcohol again. And then there was going to be like commercial components to that. So like all these laws that exist now exist around like keeping certain people down and making other people lots of money and like getting to the root of that as a, an operator, you know, has been something that like as different state senators and, you know, people in different states based on their, you know, who's bringing legislation have sought to like navigate some of these, um, you know, COVID uh, relaxation of policies in order to help businesses. Like they have to wade through that stuff. They have to look at why is it that you can't take a drink out of your place in San Francisco, but you can in New Orleans and what are the historical contexts around which made that? And then it becomes kind of arbitrary and kind of frivolous. So in the case of that example, <laughs> you know, as the operator in me thinks that that is a really big win. And there, there is a great example. So, you know, here in LA, they relaxed, I think it's the same in San Francisco, they've relaxed rules about be, people uh, being on the street. So a lot of restaurants were given and bars space in front of their properties that was previously parking or, you know, n not being used for food service. And actually, I'd, I'd say that that's made a really positive impact into the community. If you cycle down Main Street in Santa Monica now, which used to have two strips of parking there for the for the shops and kind of felt pretty dead all the time, um, it now has a strip of tables for different bars and restaurants that are all along and it's really busy and you get to see people out in the community. And I think that's a, it's definitely a kind of positive thing to come out. For people that are excited about food, drink the conviviality that is uh created by people bonding over food and drink and that social interaction they would all agree with you myself included but i can say uh from direct experience that that's not the way that everybody thinks and it's like a challenging time i was on uh three hours of public comment yesterday with uh one of the subcommittees in san francisco as we are uh facing the permanence or non-permanence of our program that allows those uh, types of spaces to exist. And obviously, you know, uh, bar, restaurant, cafe, hospitality type operators are like, you know, so in favor of this 
And of course, a myriad of other things that would make it sort of like more friendly to do business in a city. And like, there are a lot of people that don't want it. Some people really like parking. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's funny because like, as an example, you know, people bring this up and I'm thinking to myself, like nobody in the history of progressive politics has ever cited a policy that like supports the use of cars as one of the things to accomplish their agenda. In every other situation, they have been actively trying to take away parking, <laughs> take away cars, increase bike lanes, increase pedestrianization, which are all things that I'm also in favor of. But in this particular case, they're like, whoa, well, what about all the parking spaces? <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a, a hot it's, topic. It is a hot topic, and and I think I, I just want to pick up on something that um, that Dre was was talking about there. As, as we kind of come out of the pandemic, and everyone has has got some new habits, good and bad. I think there has been some some um, of the isolation of in, in the pandemic has been really healthy for some people. Some of the 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 things that people don't like in their life have kind of gone away. Long commutes. There's there's been some some really positive adjustments that people have uh, made. Um, and and then you know I'm sure there's some some bad habits that people have got into. There's big you know celebrities doing their kind of getting their body back things on Instagram. You know that I, I think a lot of people are, are, are recognizing that they now need to kind of make an adjustment um, back into the world as as we sort of reintegrate. I'm really interested in in what you think that that means for for bars and restaurants. What what does the next I don't know five ten years of bars and restaurants look like? I have felt like the pandemic was the great individualizer for bars and restaurants. And that I feel like prior to the pandemic, we could all look at each other and see way more similarities than differences if we just sort of strip it down. Like, hey, we're all, you know, open five to seven days a week. We all have guests in. We all make drinks and food for them. We generally talk about good ingredients and creative perspectives and good hospitality and we have our staffs and we want to build community and you know people drink the drinks and they eat the food and like that's what our bar or restaurant looks like and when the pandemic happened it highlighted differences because it was clear that how each bar or restaurant was going to navigate the pandemic and um, strategize their survival was different. And it was different because of like the details of their business. Many things, frankly, that like were, were things that like guests don't even see, right? Like, I don't know, like, were you a place that had debt or how long was your lease? What was your relationship like with your landlord? Do you still like doing this for a living? You know, like, like lots of stuff like that, that just related to the business. And, you know, as we all know, many places that haven't made it through the pandemic that uh, closed permanently. And some of them closed permanently because like they just ran out of money and you know th there was no more money to go on or you know the landlord wouldn't uh, negotiate their lease or, or whatever, but like strictly financial components and math. And then there were other people where it was just like, this is just like the right time. And you know, I'm tired or it's sort of a way that I can just like be out, right? And my ego doesn't have to be involved or closed. It's sort of like, this is the time. And that's like, that's totally okay too. And I did that soul searching myself. You know, one of my places, Bon Voyage, 
we've been open for a year and a half. Now we've been closed for like a year and a half, basically. And I really had to give a lot of thought to like, okay, like, do I believe and do I want? Because if I don't want, or I don't believe, like I could just be gone now, right? Like it would be like, oh, wow, it was too hard. We couldn't make it, right? And it's sort of not in my nature, but I also didn't arrive at that conclusion. Um, so in terms of what happens in the next five to 10 years, Tom, it's really unclear. Like, I think what happens in the next year is like a really big deal. And I'd say that what I noticed and with the interactions and relationships that I've had, I've seen that people are coming through this from a human point of view, being like, I thought that I wanted to be in bars and restaurants, but now it's clear to me that I don't want to do that. Like, that's not what I want to do for my career. I don't want to spend any more time either owning it or managing it or working in it. Like, that's not my thing. Or people that have like doubled down where they're like, it's clear that this is what I want to do. And that while that was like insane or intense, I either was able to like thrive in it or it didn't break me or like, I can just tell that this is like where I'm supposed to be. And so one thing that I think will come out of it is like, uh, like, uh, a heightened commitment, like the places that are going to open now in my mind in places like San Francisco are going to be with people that are like, I believe I'm like, I want this to happen. Like I want to be in the restaurant business. Like I want to make this thing that is, you know, an extension of who I am or, you know, the, the food and beverage ideals that I believe in. And so that's really cool. Um, the so kind of clarifying like, a focus so that, that like people are not sort of sleepwalking into it just because they happen. It's like, the habit's been broken, so people are either going to come in with a really kind of, with real juice to this and put commitment and creativity into it, or they've, they have realized through this really testing time that it's just not their, their game. Yeah. I also, I also believe that like anybody who is like not heard that the restaurant and bar world is like imploding on itself, you know, that there's like a bar and restaurant apocalypse has been living under a rock like this this was rhetoric before the pandemic. So, you know, anybody who's doing it now, you know, in my mind should be more aware of the risks, right? Like, you know, that you're getting into a business where it's like, it's not like anybody's going to print money or do anything like that. It's like, you've got to want to be connected to it. And so I assume that that means that there's people that are connected to like the parts of it that I love parts about flavor, the parts about humans, the parts about hospitality, the parts about like designing spaces, the parts about like being a, a food and drink business in a neighborhood that helps like create neighborhood vitality, meeting places, like things that are like, not just like the transactional, here's the food, here's the drink, but sort of like the other stuff that also comes along with that. Almost like that sense of purpose. And I, I love that, you know, everyone has a different sense of purpose in this huge landscape. But once you really align and identify what that is for you, then it almost becomes, it's not easy. It's never easy, but it almost becomes uh, organic. It almost sounds like there's this um, effortless passion that's there that can justify all, all the hard work. I wouldn't call it effortless, but I think that it's nice. <laughs> Looks, you make it look effortless. I do. I, I do. You know, I have my own struggles for sure. And, and now is a time where I really have to face that. And to the point that you guys were making earlier about people's habits and sort of the ones that they got into in the pandemic, the ones they get out of, it's like, you know, I feel like I'm opening three businesses from scratch again. 
you know, and I'm fortunate that I have the businesses there to reopen, but it's like, it's a lot. And I, you know, I, I have to acknowledge that with myself. It's sort of something that I'm, I'm confronting head on as particularly now I'm getting closer to like going, understanding sort of like the financial limitations, the, the things that we've endured over the year. And it's like, all right, you know, it's, it's time to go. And it's time to sort of like turn the dial back up. It's, it, it is an ongoing challenge that I'm navigating daily. Can we yeah. talk a little bit more about your mental wellness, just in the sense of some of the tools that you might be using to address and and help relieve some of this stress, uncertainty, you know, new ta- challenges? Mm-hmm. Are there some intentional tools around your self-care that you felt have been really helpful for you, especially during this time? I would say that I generally have like a therapeutic way of thinking. I have like a bank of therapeutic vocabulary that I can try and employ with myself because of my experience in treatment before and some limited participation in, in sort of a, like non sobriety therapy as well. Uh, although in the past, not currently. And I've tried to bring that way of thinking to my day to day and that there's like an emotional logic that I try and look at. And uh, despite people's commentary around sobriety being something that like we can't control, which is sort of one of the common things that people talk about in sobriety is particularly with like the most accepted model being the AA model. And it's something that I don't necessarily agree with in AA where they're like, well, you can't control it. And so that's why you need to like believe in a power greater than yourself, because that's going to be the thing that does it. And I don't believe that. I believe that I'm the one that's in control. Like I make the decisions to do or not do anything that I want. And I have tools that I work on and also believe in higher powers, and you know, to guide that and other things in my life. But it's like I, I make the decisions of, of how I live. So that's like this logic that I employ. Um, and when I am dealing with uh, valleys, let's say. Uh, I try and intellectualize my relationship with those emotions. And to the point that, you know, we started on, I guess, you know, it's real for me. Like I have to try and manifest my optimistic approach. Like I have to believe that everything is going to be okay. And I, I, I recognize how we can propel ourselves in different directions. And it's not like things are instant and it's not like things are complete, right? We're, we're always on sort of like some spectrum, I believe, and striving. But I believe in my ability to help myself by thinking and working on myself and what's going on. Uh, sometimes it's easier said than done, of course. And I will admit that, um, you know, I am a person that like, you know, has feelings of depression. Like, it's not like I need to go to a doctor to tell me like whether they think I'm depressed or not. It's like, like, I understand what I think that that means. And sort of like, I go on, on versions of that. And that's something that, um, you know, like, it's just, it's something that I have to navigate as a human, uh, and that I want to be up and I want to be bright, but I also recognize when there's things in my life that, you know, make it harder to be that on a day or a week or a month, 
And there's sort of like micro and macro ways of looking at that. Like generally speaking, I don't think that I'm a depressed person, but I certainly have those feelings from time to time. Things go on in our lives that we have to encounter. You know, that's just, you know, I'd, I'd much rather not be that way and do the things that I can to try and affect my own outlook, like trudge out of it than the opposite direction. So I wouldn't say that I have like a one, two, three kind of guidebook for it, but it's certainly like, you know, I try and stay connected with myself and, and realize what I'm feeling when I'm feeling it and affect it however I can. Yeah, clearly community is really important to you as well. And that's been one of the things that was stripped away for many people in, in the last year. And, you know, bars and restaurants are always hubs for community. Uh, you have those. But beyond that, um, you've given a huge amount to community in terms of um, give back as well. Pig and Punch events, I think, is, is given over 750K raised and, and directed out to other people as a scholarship fund. Um, and it has looked at um, lots of different uh, areas where, where it's impacted the community. Can you tell me about that and what was the inspiration behind that? Yeah, so... Um, Pig and Punch was an event that I started with my, my uh, former partner, uh, who's co-founder of the company with me. And, uh, the completeness of it occurred in a few steps. Um, the intentions were from the beginning, but there's, there were a couple components of it where, you know, it started out as like, well, you know, they're like people love food, people love drink, food and drink, bring people together. We're starting a company. We want to like, you know, show what our personality is as a company. How do we do that? What are the details, you know, around, you know, our brand of, uh, you know, fun and eating and drinking that make us different than someone else or somebody else's restaurant or whatever. And, uh, we love the idea of like being able to use our platform to raise money and to direct it and to be able to like coordinate manpower to be able to help uh, something get accomplished. Right. So pig and punch essentially became this formula where there was like a pig roast and sort of like big community drinking thing that would, you know, usually happen in a park or like a park type setting. And there was music and food and, it was really like not a precious kind of thing, which was, you know, at the beginning of the cocktail renaissance, what we were seeing was like a lot of sort of like really kind of snooty type of like, you know, cocktail events where you know everything was taking itself like really seriously. And so that was also an important context for that time that we were sort of throwing this like kind of like trash can backyard barbecue thing, uh, you know, with really good products, but like just with all that other stuff stripped away. And so anyway, we grew the event. We did it for 10 years. We did it in multiple cities and uh, Pig and Punch raised um, about a half a million bucks, uh, over 10,000 man hours of labor. And all of that money and that, um, that volunteer work was directed into like uh, youth development education programs in the different cities where we were doing the events. And fast forwarding through that, uh, then opening our bars, it was really easy to apply the the existence of that as a demonstration of our values into the values of our business and our businesses as we opened them. And uh, so we, we built a lot of different initiatives into what we do at the bar. It sort of became a hallmark of like how we do things where we would constantly be doing like mini events and making things that were artist collaborations to sell and uh, you know, 
with this, with this sort of relationship of like getting things funded that we could sell to other people and donate the money and whatnot. So fast forward to sort of through that again, I was able to accomplish something that I had had on my mind for a long time. And a couple of years ago, we created uh, something called the Bon Vivant Scholarship, which is through an amazing organization called Scholar Match based out of San Francisco, now also with an outpost in LA started by the author Dave Eggers. And it's sort of like a to and through college uh, sort of a mentorship program. And our scholarship in that program pays for the Scholar Match services of one of their students as they go to and all the way through college, right? So we're not paying for their college tuition. We are paying for the services that Scholar Match provides, which then does a lot of different things for them. Like it pays for their books, helps them pay for housing, keeps them with a mentor, helps them like take out a loan and pay it back so they can get credit. And sort of a lot of things that traditional scholarships don't pay for is where Scholar Match steps in. And Scholar Match has, uh, you know, they focus on first in their family to college students. And uh, so we now have two amazing students that are Bon Vivant scholars in college. This year will be the third. Uh, youth development and education component of this was the important one for me. And that was because I view my time as getting to college, the turmoil that I experienced there, and then my... Um, re-engagement with university after I got sober as being this like incredibly critical uh, point in my life where uh, I feel very blessed. I feel like very connected with the privilege that I had to have been able to get to a higher education in the first place. Uh, very connected with the privilege that I had to fuck up bad enough that like, and still not have it end that opportunity for me permanently. And then the opportunity to re-engage in essentially my reincarnated life as a newly sober person to commit to education in a way that I hadn't at any point prior in my life, and then really like reap the benefits of that. And I look at those two and a half years of college that I spent after I got sober and find it more impactful into my life and formation and future than like all of the rest of it put together. And so that point in a young person's life became like really important to me to want to support that, uh, that age and that dynamic. That's really inspiring. And, and I think honestly, just hearing your story from all the way through and hearing how you kind of turned, uh, you know, a, a challenge into, you didn't let it get in the way of your passion, how you've made, want some of the best bars in the in the world be not just about the booze but about taste and, and welcoming environments but also how you've taken that love for being in hospitality and, and seeing what strength that that's that's kind of brought to you and being giving people access to education and the path that you've taken is a really really inspiring story and I think is you know just going back to the first question talking about optimism what that means you're doing you're taking real actions. You're you're putting a huge amount of time, energy, and effort, and, and in in the case of of fundraising, uh, cash where your where your mouth is. So, it's a really inspiring story. Thank you for sharing with us. And and before we go, I'd love to hear if there's any kind of cultural ins inspiration that you have. I know that you're uh, a vintage 
goods aficionado. I've seen the Instagram. There's some amazing um, pieces on there. You run still, so you're still a kind of active athlete. Um, is there any books or music or a piece of vintage uh, furniture that, that is a piece of inspiration for you? Is there a track that we could add to the Optimist playlist or, or anything that you've seen in culture that's really inspired you over the last couple of months? Well, I will say that I spend most of my free time uh, to use a, a, a term probably a lot of people know these days, uh, picking. Although not necessarily like the American pickers on TV, they're a little bit more pro than I am, but uh, I go to like lots of estate sales. You know, this isn't like, it's not like I just like go to an estate sale sometimes. Like I spend all of my weekends like rocking around the Bay Area, rooting around through people's houses uh, very systematically. I also like, I sort of like buy and sell and collect. And so there is a component of this that is like really inspiring to me, like the anthropological part of, you know, connecting with things from the past and particularly with them when they're in the context of other people's lives and the lives that they've lived and what you see when you look through like the things that people have collected where they traveled to the photos of them and their family the experiences that they had i mean it's like really it's like a tremendous thing and so i you know being the custodian of certain items and you know keeping some of them and passing others along to good homes is something that is really exciting to me it really like fills me with a lot of uh you know energy uh we joke around here that it's all that i really want to do and you know it probably is all that i really want to do but uh, you know, I also have these businesses. So that and the things that I find there, like it is probably the most creative thought provoking thing that I do because I'm constantly like connecting with a new object, a new perspective, a new color, a new place, a new, you know, all of that. So that's my jam. Awesome. Well, Josh, thank you so much for taking time today. It's been really inspiring hearing your story. Um, and I look forward to going deep on the, on the vintage uh, Instagram handle. You might get sucked in. Thanks for having me, guys. It was great to be on with both of you. You've been listening to Optimist in Progress, a podcast from Optimist Drinks, presented by Dr. Drea Letamendi and Tom Johnstone, with original music by Reginald Science Perry, edited by Brian Ward, researched by Lisa Farr Johnston, and produced by Natalie Parrish. For more information, go to optimistdrinks.com forward slash podcast or follow at Optimist Drinks on Instagram. For more from Drea, follow at ArkhamAsylumDoc on Instagram. And for inquiries, email us, podcast at optimistdrinks.com. Thanks for listening.